0: This episode is sponsored by Luminous Creative Agency. Headquartered in downtown Providence, Luminous works with businesses and organizations to enhance their marketing efforts by developing high-quality creative content such as video, ad campaigns, design, branding, and more. You can learn more by visiting luminous.agency. That's L-U-M-I-N-O-U-S.agency. Welcome back to the Hey Roadie podcast, where we take a deep dive in the ocean state and the people who make it great. We are your hosts, Nick and Sasha.
1: Hi, guys. And on today's episode, we are so, so excited. We have Yarrow Thorne, the executive director and founder of Avenue Concept, the organization behind a lot of the most beautiful murals, sculptures, artwork, uh, street art that you see in the city of Providence, in the different neighborhoods and boroughs and in down city We are so excited. We had so much fun with him. He is so interesting and we can't wait to have him back on. Honestly, we were talking for a long time and it felt like we didn't even scratch the surface. So
0: yeah, he'll definitely be back on. It was a really, really cool conversation. He's a very interesting person. Uh, and the whole concept behind Avenue concept pun intended, uh, is very interesting and just a a wealth of possible conversation. So we're going to have him back on in the future, and we really hope you enjoy his first visit.
1: Have fun, guys. <laughs> no, but we, um, so I know from doing, so I did some research, obviously. Um, I was really excited to have you on. like I said, um, before we started recording, I, I, over the pandemic, I had the chance to really like dive into the, city that I lived in and I got to experience the art and I got to understand like how did this beautiful mural get put here like how did this happen and so through that sort of research I found out about Avenue Concept which we'll get you know we'll we'll talk about a little bit but you're not originally from Rhode Island you're originally from Mass.
2: I am I'm from Northampton Mass.
1: Okay and what like made you decide to come here?
2: Initially I came here for school for I went to RISD and um I was really interested in design, Uh, both my parents are architects and teachers, and I was very dyslexic growing up. So the idea of uh, not going down a conventional line with normal education and really trying to find a way to be outside the box more, and RISD could really help solve some of those challenges for me. Um, So I came here, but I ultimately left. I, I left after a year and a half.
1: You did? I did. Oh my God, where did you go?
2: Um, I got a medical leave. I gave myself mono twice from stress oh, no! And, um, I didn't know
0: that was possible. You can do that.
2: You can actually, I didn't know it either. Um, <laughs> I wish it was because of other reasons, but, um, it wasn't, but, um, you know, I think as a dyslexic person, you know, you spend your entire life coming up with ways to solve, you know, everyday challenges, you know, it takes you an hour and a half to read a paper, one page in a paper hack- hack book. Um, you, you're reading everything backwards. So you're constantly sort of outside the box trying to create ways and work through. And then you walk walk into an art class at RISD and there's two live mannequins hanging from the ceiling by chains and a giant piece of paper and a piece of chalk. And I have no idea how to take on that challenge. Yeah. You know, I I didn't really have a lot of sort of art training before I went to RISD. I had a lot of pr- uh, problem solving and sort of, you know, I. Done glass blowing. I've done boat building. I did needlework, and you know anything and everything I could get my hands on. Because of my parents were both artists and designers, and we, a lot of friends were just constantly and doing all this different stuff. You know, I had a master of all of these different skill sets, but I never really mastered any of them. Yeah. So I came to RISD, got totally overwhelmed, and then you know when I went into my major in sophomore year, you know my approach to being at RISD was you know why am I going to read an elect, an elect textbook about glass blowing and about all the, the ways that it connects with people when I can just go down the glass department and watch, you know, Juhuli or some glass person, you know, do this amazing stuff. Yeah. And at the time it was really frowned upon, you know, it was, you have to read the textbooks. You have to do this. You can't cross the the different departments and majors. And it just stressed me out. Mm. I mean, I literally wasn't sleeping you know had a lot of sort of things so I ended up leaving and um at the time my dad took some time off and we traveled a little bit together and then I came back and I started a car business and I, I built Volkswagens and Audis and sort of customized cars and but it was a way for me to help people solve problems mm. and at the time you know one of my first jobs was working in a mechanic shop and um but I always liked automobiles. I liked mechanical things. I liked sort of things that you could touch and interact with. And I really liked to connect with people. And that was a common ground. Mm. So I sort of had this car business and Rhode Island was a great place for me to come back to. I also deep down wanted to figure out how to connect the water and the ocean with my life. Mm. And Rhode Island was a way for me to do that. Um, It was also a more affordable city. uh, And it Allowed me to do something I would wouldn't be able to do otherwise. So I ultimately came back to RIS, to Rhode Island, um, and ran my business here for you know over ten years, and then uh, sold it, and then went back to school and finished my degree. Oh, um, at RISD. At RISD. Okay. So RISD gives you ten years to go back to school without reapplying.
0: That was going to be my next question. Like, yeah. did you just make it under the wire <laughs> on that one?
2: I did. That was a an interesting sort of challenge, I guess. You sort of. They gave you ten years to come back. I think most people come back after a year taking a sabbatical or something Mm -hmm. else. And I came back after nine and three quarters and I don't think the school had ever done that before. So, you know, my you have to follow your original degree. And when I first started, you have to take a drafting class, like pen and paper. And when I go went back, you know, that professor didn't teach there anymore. So I had to take a, a drafting course to graduate or figure out a way to get the credits of drafting turned into a cad you know thing so i can take a cad course and make that count for the drafting so there's a constant back and forth of you know take this make it look like something else get it approved by someone else rework the system a little bit and then sort of put it back in and you know meanwhile i was just working with all of these different silos and different department heads and sort of navigating all these spaces and when i went back i was in a very different mindset. I was a lot older. I wasn't going to sort of prove a point. I was mm. there to really understand sort of what are my skill sets? What are the things that are going to, you know, inspire me for the next sort of 10, 20, 30 years, but also what are people really interested in? Mm. And, you know, that's that problem solving side of me. And, um, and I learned early on that, you know, RISD didn't have a public art program, but they had a lot of community challenges. They wanted to find a, a way to, to, get the students to work interdepartment wise, but also how to connect with their immediate neighborhoods. Hmm. So I started RISD art walls, which is a public art program and sort of that's a, you know, a a
0: little foreshadowing. <laughs> on
2: yeah. Sorry. I went way overboard. <laughs> no, that's I do that nice. a lot. So no, I like <laughs> that. I
1: that. have a, I have a quick question if yeah. um, just cause I feel, and we've talked about this before, actually about how, when you start, when you go to college, you're hmm. usually young, you're usually right at like you're, not at home for the first time, you're on your own for the first time. And it's a really kind of an awful time period to like be given all this responsibility. Classes, uh, a lot of times college kids have to start paying bills, working a job, managing your time um, at 18 years old, deciding like what eventually you might do for a living. So do you feel like when you took, because basically you left RISD and you had a whole life, like you took the time to have a life and to, like you said like find out the things that you like you got to travel you got to see different areas you got to you know try a different job in being a mechanic do you feel like that was what brought you back or like did that bring you like in turn back to like the art and like the the RISD of it all like getting to experience your own sort of life cuz i feel like if you had stayed and you were overwhelmed and you were you know feeling sort of out of sorts your end goal or your end, like where you would be now, would be totally different. Correct. Because you'd probably start resenting it. Um, so I'm wondering, like, if you feel like taking that time was kind of what brought you back.
0: Or, like, or to also address that, like, was there a specific thing that happened that made you say, I'm going to sell this company and go back to mm,
1: that, that That's <laughs> kind of what I was getting. I could not formulate that question. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. No, I think it's all
2: all valid points. I mean, I think, you know, there's no easy answer to that one. I mean, that we could spend the whole time just talking about that. But
0: yeah, you can lay down on that couch if you <laughs> want. We'll, we'll really hash this out. <laughs> um,
2: yeah, I mean, I, th- I think I I was fortunate enough to you know be raised in a a family that was just incredibly supportive, mm. and I think you know my parents were uh, both architects and designers. Um, You know, they before they got married, they drove a Land Rover around the world for 14 months, studying windows and doorways. Oh my god, that's so They cool. got a, a a big grant. Um, you know, their grad school closed for a period of time and um and they sort of did this trip with no expectations, you know, and literally wrote the vaguest grant they could and <laughs> um sort of put their friends together and said, you know, we want to see the world and we want to, you know, do it in the most open way possible. And you know, you grow up in a life or you grow up in a family where, you know, my dad would literally stop on the side of the road and draw window frames and benches and stuff. Cause he's just inspired by it. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what does that mean? And how does it relate to somebody? And why is it that curves and how's the sun bouncing off of it? And the hue of the color shifts when you're this time of day compared to that time of day. And, you know, look at it through a piece of glass, look at it through, you know, filter, look at it, you know. So there's this constant, like nothing's ever balanced. Mm. It's always sort of figuring it out. And I think as, as architects, they're also, with clients and themselves, just really interested in public space, really mm. interested in sort of how does this all work? you know? And when they came back from this trip, they got married. You know, They were living in a teepee year-round in Vermont. My mom came down, went to Smith as an undergrad, and went to Smith looking for a job. And the department head said, I'm going on sabbatical, why don't you take the entire department? So oh you know, they were straight out of grad school, did this amazing trip, had all of the slides, all of this microfiche, all of this amazing content. Uh, we're literally living in a teepee around Vermont, and um, we're giving the entire department at Smith, UMass, Mass & Amherst you know, as very young people. That's and, crazy. You know, and at the time, Northampton, which is an incredibly vibrant town right now, you know, in the early seventies was literally a ghost town. Every single building was boarded up. Um, the town and the state saw it as high maintenance, uh, sort of vacant property essentially. And there's a lot of government money to level these sort of high maintenance areas and turn them into strip malls and fluorescent signs and steel structures and stuff like that. And, you know, they use their, they use their students to literally picket the bulldozers and, uh, Convince the town to not level itself and not take the easy money.
1: Wow! And to,
2: um, you know, promote small business and to put flower boxes on the sidewalks and you know do all these things that I think a lot of people were talking about. But in the early '70s, it was still very you know contemporary. Mm. And the town said, "Put up or shut up." So they bought the oldest building in town for almost nothing. They, uh, my dad, started a French Star on the first floor. Put a flower box right out front
1: oh, uh, first thing
2: they rented a bunch of rooms upstairs to uh, their friends and colleagues and students they had a little loft on the top floor my sister and i were born at home in that building uh, oh, right God. on main street um and you know the rest is history you know and i think they they used their student they had this unique opportunity with all of this research and all of this time you know really just putting yourself in you know, public public plaza in the middle of North Africa or in, you know, Pakistan or wherever and not trying to do anything, mm. just listening and, and smelling and opening your senses up mm. and sort of being in that space. And, you know, I never really understood what any of that meant. You know, and my dad also was a jazz pianist growing up. Um, actually went, what he went to school for initially. He ended up later on starting a jazz club, which, you know, every night, musicians would be in our house and my dad would be playing late night piano. And so I went to bed every night. Mm. And, um, and that jazz club was called the Avenue, you know? So, you know, it's for me, I've always struggled with this, mm. you know, sort of how to put all these pieces together. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, when I left Rhode Island, I never really understood the city or the state in any real capacity. I was just overwhelmed. Mm. And I think when I started this business and I had a lot of other sort of things that we'll get into at another time. <laughs> um, but I I really wanted to find a work-life balance that was really important to me. And deep down, I had a, I knew I had a love for the sea and I knew, had a love for sort of finding more balance. And I felt mm-hmm. that Rhode Island was a, a solution, but not really knowing what that was. And um, so I ended up coming back and, you know, I had no regrets.
1: One thing that I love that I because, you know, obviously I, I did some research and but again, the reason why we're doing this podcast is because you can read an article about someone, but you don't really know the person or like the experiences they lived through. And it feels like all like I, Nick said it earlier, like it's all a little like foreshadowing things like mm-hmm. the way your parents, um, you know, helped make this town that was going to turn into basically a strip mall keep its integrity and keep the community alive and and how now the avenue concept is doing that and how it took them i don't know it just it's crazy how things happen like that and how you would never again why i'm so happy that we're doing this is like getting to know you as a person creates such a different view and like appreciation for the things that you're doing um and the art and the community that you're building and i i it's just so cool. Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm gushing now. <laughs>
0: no, good. The whole thing kind of hits me on like every level because like I have a very similar experience, not with my parents, but like just personally um, with, uh, you know, I hated school. I don't know how you felt about school in general, like <laughs> high school. I, I just hated it. I couldn't, I, I think we talked about this on a, a podcast already, but I couldn't stand it. So when I, I got out of high school, I said, I'm going straight into work. I worked for two or three years. I like managed a warehouse. I worked at CVS warehouse and I just was miserable. And I finally, I waited until I was like, I wanted to go to school and then I went to school and I went to New England Tech and I started in like the gaming program and then quickly realized that the gaming program had nothing to do with visuals uh, when I was sitting in a C++ programming class and like banging my head against the desk. Mm. And then I had to do a similar thing and switch majors to something else and kind of try to figure out a way to make those things all fit together and not lose all the credits that I just spent money taking classes on and <laughs> doing all that kind of stuff too. And uh, so like my, my college experience was kind of similar uh, and then also just kind of uh, growing up, I was like always into art. Yeah. every, every aspect, uh, you know, I did like, I had phases for everything. So I like, I painted for a little bit and I I sketched for a little bit. And then I, I worked in charcoals for a while. And then I did a, I can't remember what they call it. It's like scratch art where you get the big scratch pads and you have to like scratch away to like work with negative space. And, uh, now I do photography and I do graphic design stuff. And like, it was that kind of, uh, uh, Jack of all trades, master of none kind of thing. And I still do that. I like, I'll pick up woodworking or I'll pick up this thing like anything. And it's that same present me with a problem that I can creatively solve. And whether, no matter what it is, even if the problem is just, I need something to put stuff on next to my bed. So I have to make a side table. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I just,
2: i um, I've never, I've always been a hands-on learner. It's just how yeah. I am. And I think it's, it's a, a challenge even today with the, the career I've chosen. But early on, I mean, I was the same way. I mean, I was, I struggled. With school from kindergarten on. And I just never found something that I really aligned with. And Mm -hmm. I think I still don't call myself an artist. You know, I think I'm more of a designer or a problem Mm -hmm. solver. And I think, you know, I never really took a painting class or, you know, a photo class or anything like that. But I was, because of this environment that I was raised in, you know, all of my parents' friends were painters and artists and sculptors and photographers and glass blowers and, all doing really amazing stuff. So, you know, we would just go have dinner or go to our best friend's house and, you know, just surrounded by amazing things Mm. or really complicated challenges that, Mm. you know, for me, I was always interested in the challenge. I wasn't always necessarily interested in the solution, Mm. but I think building that patience, I think is also a big part of it. And, you know, it just, you can't go for the easy solution. And I think, You know, even in like high schools and, you know, I think there was a study done in like 97 with the ISL in Boston or something where they all these sort of private schools. But they're saying that the top you know, 10 or 20 percent ends up working for the bottom 10 or 20 percent. And many times the bottom 10 percent are sort of washed out the bottom Mm -hmm. because they've struggled with school or they're dyslexic or Mm -hmm. all these other things. But they're also super entrepreneurial. They're really outside the box. You know, they don't want to just go work for someone and check the boxes and leave at five o'clock. They want to work all night long and they want to come Mm -hmm. up with a solution. You know, they want to be a rafting guide and they want to design the boat they're going to do the rafting guide in. And they're not, they're also more open to risk, Mm. you know, they'll, they'll dive off the deep end, you know, realizing they're going to bounce off the bottom, but through the process, they're going to redesign the bottom of the pool. So that doesn't happen anymore. Mm. You know, and that's a very different approach to Mm -hmm. how to take on some of these parts and pieces. And I never knew it, but I think that's a lot of who I am. And I think I'm, I had this sort of unique skill set that I still don't really know how to value or appreciate. And Mm. every day I wake up and just so lucky, happy to be, you know, in a place like Rhode Island, but also doing something that I'm passionate about. But I'm also petrified every yeah. day, and I I love that.
1: Yeah, and I think too, um, like you said, growing up being dyslexic, I feel like it wasn't until like pretty recently that that was a conversation that people were like open to having, and there wasn't such a stigma about it, and there wasn't, you know, um. I I would feel that growing up dyslexic in a time when people aren't really talking about it, you might feel like stupid or less than or like, why am I not getting this? Why is this not making sense to me? Because you don't have like the tools to understand, like, okay, like my brain just sees things slightly different. And I mean, I don't know, like you said, you were able to harvest that sort of like, you know, challenge and in problem solve from it, which I think is really cool. And like you said, I think um a lot of people who who grew up, because I mean, I, you know, when I went to high school, I remember, um, and, and this, I, I mean, I'm celebrating, what is it? I graduated in 2009. So whatever that math is. And even then, like, if you had a learning disability, of any sort, it was like, oh, no, like I have to I have to take a special class, like I have to do this, and it was always kind of a
0: yeah, like somehow having a learning disability makes you dumb. yeah, just because you learn differently. yeah,
1: <laughs> and and there's like this stigma about it, and it's like, you know thank i'm am so happy that you were able to take those challenges and and ultimately find a really good path for yourself. and I, and I guess maybe part of it is you'm I'm, I'm gonna speak for you, hopefully that's okay, and you can ter- correct me if I'm wrong you probably got like motivated from that. Like I'm not, I, these, all these things don't make sense to me or like this word looks different than it looks to other people. How am I going to fix this? And how am I going to like make this work? And that ended up again, foreshadowing for, <laughs> for everything else. Like you were able to take those challenges and like really create something cool out of it. And I think that's like, that's so awesome. That's well, awesome. It's just so cool. It's well, so, that's-
2: such a compliment. I mean, I feel like you're, I've never thought of it that way, honestly. And the fact that you're here telling me this stuff, it's like clicking in my head too. Wow, like, <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: oh, I never really related to that way, but it makes a lot of sense. You know, and I think, you know, my whole life people have been telling me you can't do this and mm. that's impossible. So deep down, I'm like, I'm going to prove you wrong. I, I am got gonna, this. Because you're telling me this is impossible, I'm not going to go the easy route. I'm going to go the harder route. You mm-hmm. know, and, and it's a story of my life on many levels. You know, from my what I do now as a career, but also personal hobbies and, and everything I'm sort of personally interested in. I'm just, you know, I'm always interested in sort of the, the hard road. Um, cause I, I cause just you know, you can, and
1: you can, and you know, from trial and error, you can, even if it's like you said, that the result isn't what's important to you. It's like the, the challenge getting there and working through those challenges. And clearly time and time again, you've proven to yourself and to anybody who's doubted you that you can make it to the other side, whether the other side means like complete success or it means, oh, we still have working to do, but it's more clear now. Like you've made it, you know, you've gotten there, which is like awesome. Like so cool.
0: Yeah, and I mean, mentioning uh, you had brought up like the bottom 10% uh, kind of idea. And part of that is, I think, that those people in high school or in elementary school or in any of the learning process didn't have the same uh, kind of journey as everybody else did. And when they got out of school, their entire time as a, a young person uh, was spent finding creative ways to problem solve for something in a system that wasn't designed for them. So when they came out of that system, they already had that kind of drive to do these things differently, or to think about things differently, look at it in a different way. Whereas as soon as you take somebody out of a, like a rigid structured system for whom it works, uh, they step out into chaos (laughs) (laughs) and and are just kind of their head starts. So it takes, there's a little more of like a, a learning curve, for uh, some people who like the system was perfect for when they first come out and they realize like the, for lack of a better word, the real world is just chaos. And it's, it's yeah. a learning curve for the
2: whole thing. But the curve, I think the for me, the curve, even twenty fifteen twenty 20 years ago was a much slower curve. Oh yeah. You know, you didn't have this thing in your pocket, mm. cell phone or whatever, you know, even in, in the first round of college, I mean, there was, you know, how do you take a keyboard, you know, that's this big, you know, that has a whole alphabet and put it on something that you can hold in your hand. Mm. Yeah. You know, that doesn't exist. That was a huge fundamental design challenge that, you know, that world was trying to figure out, you know, and you know, the idea of, you know, you have an idea and you want to sort of self promote, that was before, you know, MySpace and Facebook and Twitter and social media and all of these other parts and pieces. And you know, there's was only one or two trajectories that you could go down. And if you wanted to do something different, you couldn't raise money. You couldn't find a community. You, know, you could do that, but it would take 10 to 15 years. You can do it now in two days mm-hmm. or less. Yeah. You can do a post and out of nowhere and you, know, you can get a national following. But at the same time, everyone's attention span is going faster and faster and faster and faster. So when cities and communities were designed around a pace that was 10, 15, 20 years, and now the population is shifting every you know, six months, mm-hmm. sort of how does that connect? You know, mm. how does that work? You know,
0: yeah, that whole idea of like the uh doing the same thing over and over and over again, um, and they get the same results, and they did that for a long time. Every like local government, federal government, whatever you're doing, organization, and now, yeah, especially younger people, like, really, like when I say younger people, I mean anybody like under 45, 50, mm. like <laughs> that, Great. the whole like uh, you know, middle generation right now, there's a kind of a a run of folks that don't necessarily want to immediately settle down in one place and they'll take a job for four years and then parlay that into a different job so they can move somewhere else and they'll travel instead of spending on things or, you know, the, the whole dynamic is kind of slow, uh, like quickly changing and the organizations and uh, people in power and for lack of a better word are having a hard time fumbling, trying to keep up with it. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I think it's interesting.
1: Well, and just like you said, you know, things now like the attention span things are moving so fast I mean I think it's the same like that even though that's like we we were talking about your cell phone and looking through things and swiping through things like that's because we're so used to that now I think it's hard for people to settle into their actual life and be like okay this is my job I have to do this every day it might not change every day like I have to wake up at the same time and do this and xyz and I think it's like you said Nick that kind of like middle ground the people who like grew up on like kind of grew up on like facebook but it, they still had that sort of like more organic childhood like i know that I, that's what i deal with i'm happy i grew up when i did because i had that when i was you know a teenager we didn't have a phone i think when i got to like senior year college is when <laughs> i like, had a
0: pager <laughs> <laughs> when i was like 14 or something Pagers that was when, are so cool. i mean so everybody other people had cell phones but like it was like the it's still the same stage where my mom was like I have an old pager. Like you take this. If this ever breaks, you can have a cell phone. I mean, that thing may have magically broken. So I, I grew up with
2: phone. no TV. Yeah. My mom knit all of our clothes. Oh my goodness! No sugar, no candy. Wow! Like as natural as you could ever get. If we were really good on Sunday hmm. after the week, my parents we would rent a TV <laughs> and watch Nova and get oh my God. take out whole wheat pizza. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then later on, we could rent a TV and a VCR. Whoa. And, you know, get a video.
1: Are yeah. you, do you, do you still abide by that a lot? Or do you, are you more in tune to like societal entertainment and things that are a little bit more, I hate the word normal, but, you know, normal?
2: I, we don't have a TV in our house. Oh, wow. Okay. You know, that's, I mean, good we, for
3: you.
1: I know. That's great. <laughs> I know. When that's you awesome. renovate and time. you get the
2: cable guy and you're like, oh, we can give all this stuff. And they're like, yeah, we don't have a TV. And they're like, what? And we're like, I mean, there's, you watch shows on your phone and Mm. stuff, but like, you know, it's a big decision. Now we Mm. have a daughter and, you know, do we raise her without a TV? And, you know, I don't know if that's the right decision anymore. I feel like, you know, if you cut people out of those things, then how do they learn how to make those decisions? You know, and I I definitely saw it with later, we we got access to TV and stuff, but the next generation, my cousins and stuff, you know, you start watching really bad TV because Mm. you don't know the difference. totally that's yeah
0: mindless stuff yeah Yeah.
2: and i think that's an important sort of part of all this and you know getting off topic again but
1: no that's no this is what this is for like yeah uh,
0: the king of tangents is that's that's me yeah Yeah, but (laughs) it's okay okay, though i I mean
2: i I think a little bit back to what you're getting to initially and you know how to transition from cars and then back to school and sort of looking at this and also looking at sort of what are the bigger problems in front of us and you know, when I was doing car stuff, like I felt really disconnected, the culture and sort of what was going on. So, you know, I picked up two night shifts, and I ran, I washed dishes at Julian's for oh, a number wow. of years. Oh wow! That's crazy. You know, it was a way to to get access to cheap food, connect with artists, and listen to great music. You know, at and pick up a shift after my day job. Mm. Um, and then I also bounced at the Strand, um, and some other places just to get access to live music and stuff mm. like that. But you know, you're standing on the street outside at two in the morning on Washington, you know, when nothing's going on, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you build a new relationship with that street, you know, in a mm-hmm. way. And when you're, you know, washing dishes and cleaning up on, you know, Broadway, when 80% of Broadway is ghost down, mm. you know, that's a very different situation than now where it's like, you know, you can't buy a house on Broadway because oh it's, it's crazy. like crazy. But when mm-hmm. Julian decided to put his, his restaurant there with one chef, you know, everyone th- said he was crazy. You know, this is never gonna work. This is gonna be impossible. You know, why would anyone ever spend time walking down Broadway, mm-hmm. you know, and and look at the empire it's created.
1: Yeah, it's it's insane. And so do you still live in Providence now?
2: Right now I don't actually. We oh, we a... moved down to North Kingstown, but oh, um still
1: in Rhode Island though. That's yeah, that's a no, plus. We're, <laughs>
2: we're never going out of Rhode Island.
1: It's... That's my favorite. I think a few of our guests have said similar sentiments like never leaving Rhode Island never have left Rhode Island, staying here forever. And to me, that's like music to my ears because I feel I was born and raised here. I left for a few years to try my hand at college and then I came right on back because I missed it so much. (laughs)
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm all for uh, anybody wanting to uh, stay in a place that they love being. I mean, uh, I'm also all for traveling and checking out other places. I like the idea of, and I still want to do more traveling uh, and I love being here. I didn't when I was a kid, obviously, because nobody loves where they are when they're a kid. Everything, everything's "quote unquote" boring when you're stupid. <laughs> you're a kid. That's but stupid. Uh, I like the idea of like traveling and settling down on the like actually seeing where other pla- what other places are mm. like, and then you know the place that you decide to stay. You stayed there because you wanted to, yeah, rather than just because that was where you happened to be. Totally, uh, which I feel like. I don't want to like, I'm a big on throwing out percentages for no freaking reason, but like, (laughs) um, I feel like a good percentage of people just end up staying where they are because that's where they are. They went to high school there, Mm -hmm. then they they went to college, and then they met somebody, and then you're in a relationship, and then you get a job, and then you buy a house because that's how life works, and then now you're in that place, and then somebody's asked you why you stayed here, and you're like, well, you know. It's where I happen to be. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean there's different different ways people look at things, but
2: but look at province as a city though. I mean, most people think of province as province proper, but mm. the province has fifteen wards and twenty-five neighborhoods. Mm. If you go to most of those wards and neighborhoods, most of them speak their own languages, have their own food, their own culture, their own music, and they're all siloed. You know, totally. and they all have this amazing depth depth of stories and traditions and all of these parts and pieces. And, you know, that was a big part of wanting to start the avenue here in Providence is, you know, yes, we're doing a lot of work downtown, but, you know, deep down, you know, and where we started was the neighborhoods. Mm. And, you know, we really wanted to find a way to, you know, anyone from any of the different wards, you know, you should be able to walk around your city, not just one area of it and have things to connect with. And,
1: totally.
2: you know, there's a long history of creative effort that's been going on all the way back to the founding of Rhode Island in Providence and, you know, even the what Gorham did with monuments and with, you know, casting and, you know, smuggling artists in from Europe to be able to do castings and then designing and developing that technology, which at the heart of it was on Elmwood, which mm. is now one of the, you know, sort of toughest neighborhoods for a while was one of the most vibrant and where most of the money was. You know, so there's a long history of the population moving around the city and state. And I think it's really interesting to sort of watch and look at that and it's still moving. And I think that's some of the challenges with, you know, public art, not just in Providence or Rhode Island, but other cities that have the same challenges they've invested in huge monuments and huge sort of sculptures and stuff that now have less value and less relevance to the communities that they are. And they don't have the budget or the ability to move them. Mm. So sort of how do you, what's, you don't go from huge permanent sculptures to pop up femoral stuff, but, you know, based on a population shift or attention spans getting shorter, maybe it doesn't matter if it's there for a hundred years or or it's there for six months. Mm. If the public is walks by it every day and is posting it on their phone and telling stories and driving conversation in the schools, sort of all those parts and pieces and sort of where are those different parts? What are those strings to pull in? And how do you navigate that? You know, Mm -hmm. and it starts by asking a question and giving yourself time to listen and to really learn as much as possible before you sort of move forward. And, you know, that's a skill set that it's, it's sort of a lost art.
1: Now, I know, obviously we're, you know, we're talking a lot about our our personal like lives and our journeys and stuff. I do really quick want to just ask, because I'm just dying to know from, from the man himself, why, what, how. The journey of starting Avenue Concept. Well, that's,
0: I was gonna just veer us back and say, like, okay, so back at RISD you did the the wall art, what did you what was it uh, again?
2: Raw RISD art walls. RISD
0: art walls. Mm-hmm. So what led from there to I that feels like a close line to mm-hmm. Avenue Concept. So what led from there to kind of kicking off Avenue Concept?
2: do you want the long or short version
3: whatever
0: feels uh, however great you want to go yeah. we got i got all day
1: yeah <laughs> we, we have time we're here for you it whatever feels the most authentic for you to tell because that's what we're most curious about yeah
2: huh. um <laughs> yeah so i think for me the you know understanding those challenges how to break the silos down a little bit i think i learned a lot from Rizzi art walls um At the time I was at RISD, and I really wanted to do something different. I wanted, because I was very entrepreneurial, I really wanted to sort of figure out how to write a business plan around working in the public spaces. And RISD couldn't, there was no, the school wouldn't really help me in that department. So they helped me by allowing me to create an independent study. So I partnered with a number of different teachers in a number of different departments, um, including even going to MIT and being a TA there, working with people at Harvard and Brown, sort of doing a putting all the pieces together that sort of made sense. And I think, you know, I was really interested in, you know, sort of how do you empower other people? How do you sort of better understand how things work and how do you capture those stories? So Art Artwall sort of happened. I think it, we learned a lot from it. I learned a lot from it. Um and before I graduated, I got an email um that said, you know, congratulations. You've been selected to be one of the 20 seed grant uh, grantees of the Rauschenberg foundation. And you know, literally delete, you know, that's spam. There's, <laughs> yeah. I didn't apply There's for no any grant. No, oh, so uh, I was like, that's, that's spam. Um, and then a week later I got a phone call and they said, you know, are you Yarrow Thorne? And I said, yeah. And they said, well, I'm the executive director of the Rauschenberg foundation. We noticed that you deleted our email <laughs> you know, and we'd, we'd love to sort of talk to you more. And, um, and that was really sort of shocking, I think in a lot of ways I think you know going back to school and sort of going through this path a little bit back to what you know you talked about Nick with parents you know I think there was a an interest in not going down the entrepreneurial route again but to um, sort of go into more structured career path and um but all of a sudden you get this sort of acknowledgement from a mass a really mm. big foundation that you know has a long history of you know supporting an artist like the Rauschenberg. that
0: you didn't even yeah, apply for <laughs> why don't you uh explain what it is just so everybody kind of knows what the foundation uh, is and what the grant would have been for anybody listening that has no idea because i vaguely know but not in particular either
2: yeah so robert Rauschenberg was a really big contemporary artist you know at his time and now it's around the pollux and the you know when all this amazing the world was really into contemporary art really really far out there. You stack a ton of cars in a parking lot and sort of have a big conversation about it. Mm -hmm. And the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation, you know, like many artists, you know, when he passed away and even before he passed away, they created a foundation to make sure that the stories of his life would continue to be there forever. You know, and it's managing a big art collection that's worth millions and millions and millions of dollars. Um, and it's traveling around the world, it's in museums, it's in collections, all this other stuff. And, you know, and just to <clears throat> put it on public record, I am not speaking on behalf of the Roschenberg foundation <laughs> or, or anyone like that. Yeah. Uh, this is all my interpretation based on meetings and stuff like that. But my understanding is that the, the Roschenberg family, um, at some point, the younger generation said that we really want to find a way to support like-minded organizations or people within our, our country or or internationally that really align with the original beliefs and thoughts of what Robert Rauschenberg was doing when he first started his career. And that was really stepping outside the box, doing something really different. Um, so there was sort of a fraction that happened within the, the family and the foundation. And the end result was they created this sort of separate fund that was uh, really set up in place to do something different. And um, I think the original idea, which was what uh, myself was part of the original seed group, is they secretly went out. They Well, they acknowledged they were identified 20 different cities in the country. Um, they secretly went out there, found advisors, people they worked with, sort of asked who, are, who and what are doing interesting things, sort of who are the, the people we should be talking to, who is sort of doing stuff. And they asked those people to nominate three or four or 10 people or whatever. And then they went back and they, as a board, they went through and reviewed all of this stuff. And then they selected out of the entire country, 20 ideas or 20 people that they thought were really doing something unique. Mm. Um, And the intention was to sort of come out of left field and to give them a grant with no uh, restrictions or guidelines, totally unrestricted. Um, and to do it for multiple years. So you had the ability to sort of try something and fail and experiment and get, you know, more funding the next year and then even another year for Mm. three years. So, and I think that's the intention was to sort of have this, you know, crazy email that showed up and (laughs) said, you know, this is going to happen. I don't think they anticipated that everyone thought it was spam. Yeah. (laughs) So they they had to do the follow-up and call and sort of backtrack a little bit. But, you know, even after that, they were still like, you know, do we want to do this? Like this doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, I was hadn't I was just graduating school and I'm like, who the hell knows anything about me or you know, RISD art walls or anything? And um, and to this day I don't know who nominated me. You know, they oh, wouldn't really? they would tell me Oh, they don't um, tell you. No, it's crazy. Super secret. So I have my own hunches and my yeah. own ideas, but um and that first round of you know, there's uh, two other organizations in province that were part of that group. Um, and it was amazing. I mean, it wasn't a huge amount of money, Mm. you know, it was, um, $10,000 for three years, Mm -hmm. uh, which was totally unrestricted. You could, you know, I think most organizations paid rent with it or other things, but I think what was unique at the time was the Avenue didn't exist. Mm. I didn't even have a name. You know, I had this idea that I did at RISD and I had a working relationship you know, with the city or province, because I had done this sort of independent study, you know, working with Lynn McCormick in arts and culture, or sort of working with the graffiti task force, or sort of spending a lot of time in sort of bars and restaurants and working at, you know, Julian's and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I had this sort of feeling and an idea, and I had this support from this amazing organization, uh, but no idea how to sort of connect the dots. And um my entrepreneurial side, and against sort of family and and other people, um, I really felt that there was a need for a public art program in Providence, and and it wasn't necessarily about public art. I think it was more about really trying to understand how do you take public space, add art and design, and drive a conversation. Yeah. And you know, for me, it was it was never about the art or design. It was about creating these avenues, finding this sort of space between or you know town officials or you know community leaders and building owners and artists can sort of have a middle ground mm. and you know in most cases you know an artist can't get paid on net 60 you know they they can't pay up front they don't have insurance they don't have all the stuff that you know a a union dot or someone would have but and they don't necessarily have the bandwidth to sort of do all the research and everything else that someone else would have when you Get a a huge city contract or something.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. So there has to be a middle ground. And I think in a city like Providence, you know, not just for the arts, but also for culinary and theater and all this other stuff, you know, that communication wasn't happening. And there was, you know, there was sort of this hit or miss. And I and I couldn't put my finger on it. I couldn't understand it. Everyone I talked to, you know, would sort of give examples of, you know, from hip hop culture to a theater play or anything in between. Uh, And I just was really fascinated in that. And I think I felt that there was something that needed to happen. So I sort of talked to my chief advisor at the time, which I worked at RISD with Dorothy Boson. Um, uh, Every friend, every person I could get my talk to was sort of like, does this make sense? And Mm. ultimately, you know, just decided to use the Rauschenberg um, and to start the Avenue Concept.
1: So how long has the Avenue Concept been like an organization? Mm
2: Well, the right. Avenue Concept started in twenty twelve when I graduated RISD. Okay. So we're, you know, the idea is nine years old. Wow. But the reality is that the organization didn't become a nonprofit until 2016. So we're only four years old as a nonprofit. Mm. And I think in in many ways you have to sort of gut check yourself that because I think a lot of people feel are aligning ourselves with much bigger institutions that have been around for twenty or thirty years. You sort of look at the scale, you look at the the level of projects that we're doing at. Um, it doesn't necessarily align with you know a four-year-old organization. It aligns with you know we're the city or we're the state or we're this or that, and you know we're not. You know we're mm. a very small group of people, um, you know, with big vision and big ideas. Uh, that's really interested in sort of finding that that sort of avenue or that ecosystem that sort of makes comes and goes. And you know, ideally, the art is really the byproduct. Mm. You know, art can come and go, and it's a way to start a conversation, but if the art is there or it's not there, you know, if you if you do your job well, that dialogue is still happening. And I think that's really exciting because it, you know, you're trying to sort of take something that doesn't exist, sort of open Pandora's box to some capacity and, you know, start those dialogues. Mm. And I think those are, you know, for me, what's really fascinating. But, you know, if I look back on it and you look at it from the dollars and cents and the number side, should have never started the avenue. <laughs> you know it's impossible yeah. that's why everyone said don't start it it's too risky mm-hmm. there's too many unknowns um, you know everything's moving too fast um, but you know skip ahead you know nine years you know there's a lot of people now really interested in public space in a way I think they haven't done before mm. and I think we're we're getting a lot of feedback from the public saying you know have you thought about this or you thought about <laughs> that or you know and that's a big shift from me you know, running around saying, you should think about this, or that could be a really exciting thing. And, you know, having to prove to people that Mm -hmm. this is something you want to think about and write a check to pay for it, Mm -hmm. you know, and now it's sort of coming back around, but, you know, there's different level of expectations or different set of standards, different conversation. You just have to sort of figure it out and it's, it's complicated.
0: Yeah. I'd love to know too, like, so I think we're, we, we're, we are kind of Talking about it as a general concept and then how it started versus where it is now. Um, What was the process like? I don't know if the best way to describe this, but the first time you wanted to do one of those monster murals and like the red tape and who to talk to and did the building come to you? Did you go to the building? Do you remember which one it was that was the very first one? Like that's something I'm super interested in is that first one
2: uh yeah i mean i know every single one it's you know we have (laughs) over 200 installations you know in nine years um you know with so every first one you do you know is like huge but it's you know in scope to the next one like you know our first big mural was or my first big mural was the underpass uh going into Oleville on westminster street which was you know essentially a wall of concrete that's 10 feet high and 40 feet across and Mm. you know, was literally getting tagged every single night, you know, was a mural at one point. Um, you know, and it took three years of meetings to wow, you know, because that's owned by DOT, it's managed by the city of Province, it has DPW, you know, all of these different sort of city departments. No one really wants to take ownership or Responsibility. Mm-hmm. There's no permit to get. There's no policy to write or understand. There's no insurance. You know, no one knows. It's like dead space. Um, and I was just really fascinated by it. And people were like, "Why the hell are you putting so much energy into this? Like, you know, it's literally just a concrete wall that's getting vandalized every single night and such huge negative infa- influence." And that was just that personal challenge. I mean, mm-hmm. it was it was down the street from where I lived. You know, it was. I always was really interested in, you know, Oleville as a community at large. You know, there's a lot of history of manufacturing and and industry there, but there's a huge creative sector and, you know, sort of a long history of of creative people living and and working and doing stuff um, and understanding the sort of pathways and stuff like that. So, and I was interested in the next, you know, I wanted to do, I, want, I wanted to build a relationship with DOT initially, which was at the time, the hardest relationship that I could figure out because, you know, DOT owns, there's a lot of roads mm. in the province, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and there's a lot of underpasses and stuff that, you know, I thought if I could build a relationship and show a proof of concept that we could then turn all of those underpasses and other things into urban parks that could mm. be a haven for, all of the arts and things that the city might not like, but could also be a really interesting sort of conversation now with people. And mm. it could turn into a skate park. It could turn into a graffiti alleyway. It could turn into, you know, an urban farm. It could, you know, all these other parts and pieces. And, but there's a lot of real estate that literally has zero value mm. and cost, you know, city and state a lot. And no one really understood why you would want to do that. So, you know, by doing that one, we we got permission, we got all the paperwork done. You sort of did it as a pathway, you know, which I was really interested, which I was personally fascinated, Is across the street, which we didn't have the contract or the agreement to do. There was a really cool B-boy mural that was painted. Mm. And it was, um, the intention was to, to do the DOT. Don't tell anyone, this isn't public, right? Um, <laughs> and we would at the same time restore the mural across the street, sort of without permission. Mm. Um, and as soon as we started touching up the the mural that was painted of, of B-Boys and Girls, literally people would stop their car on the road, get out of the car and say, what are you doing? Don't touch, don't ruin that mural. This is such an important part of our culture. And I said, no, we're actually restoring it, you mm. know, and by the way, do you know who painted it? Can you, you know, introduce us? Because the city didn't know, yeah. you know, no one knew, you know, there were some old signs and stuff on it, you know, and long story short, after 10 days of doing this mural stuff, in the end we met the original people that painted the mural wow. in middle school. Oh my they god. We're now 35 years old and they all came back. Wow. And we got to meet them with the artist. That's awesome. And you know it turns out that you know they were part of a middle school that doesn't exist anymore. They were part of a, um, a community, a community youth group called uh, Arts in the Square which was in Oleville. Mm-hmm. and they you know got some money and stuff and they they're all b-boys and girls. And they took uh, Polaroid shots of themselves posing, and then they painted each other on on the underpass as sort of a way to add art into the neighborhood. Way back in the day, everyone forgot everything, mm. um, but the community really loved this sort of story, and they really connected with it. But no one knew how to maintain it; it was sort of lost art. And mm. you know, through the process of doing it, you know, the neighborhood really responded, thought that we were rolling over it, and then we actually ended up restoring it. We didn't know, you know. Like we worked with at the time, I was also running an urban skate park, and we had a, a hip hop workshop at the Avenue. We had DJ classes, and also supported a number of local b boy and, and uh, b boy groups and stuff. So we actually worked with them because we didn't know who the dancers were, mm-hmm. and we really wanted to put names on them. Mm-hmm. So uh, we sort of went into the neighborhoods and these sort of b boy groups and said, you know, "Who are the elders? Like, can we?" A find who did these things, what their real names were. We couldn't at the time, so we we thought we would sort of replicate it. But then through this process, we actually met all these people.
1: Wow.
2: Found their original names and put all their new names back on the mural. That
1: is so cool. Which was
2: really cool. That is awesome. I mean, I wish I recorded all that. Mm. You know, and at the time, the avenue like it Should was have been me. Making a documentary I know <laughs> totally. I mean, oh. it was, it was an amazing you know set of scenarios, but it, it's so empowering to just. Mm literally be on the street you're like sweeping up broken bottles and they're just standing there just working with the artist finding something that's going to be inspirational you do something else that's across the street and it's not a huge wall it's you know 40 feet across and eight feet high it's now totally destroyed because of the construction on 195 Um, but for me that was and that's the stuff I love you know and I want to get back to it you know, I, as for the bigger stuff, which I think you're asking for before I can sort of well, I, go I down guess, that road too.
0: I know. I like that too. But the, you, I think you answered my question on that one because it was really that first, cause when you tell people like, oh, we're going to work, uh, we're going to we're kind of starting a company or it becomes a nonprofit, but it would have just been a company to begin with. Correct. And you're saying like, oh, well, we're going to work with community arts and we're going to try to get like, you know, murals and local artists up on walls. And like, that fight with the DOT or with you know the city of Providence or figuring out we just talk to people like for interviews and we're like trying to get in touch with <laughs> one person and we don't know who to talk to and then it takes us twenty minutes of uh, talking to one person who then sends you to another person who sends you to another, like that's convoluted so I had to imagine I mean now it must be a little bit more straightforward it has to still be convoluted because it's red tape on red tape mm-hmm. but um learning that process from the beginning of like oh i have to deal with the government <laughs> and and 95 different people with mm. uh, different responsibilities and nobody wants to take responsibility and like that's really interesting i think
2: yeah i mean it, for me it goes back to this selec- dyslexic days in school and stuff you know mm. and it's a lot easier to say no than it mm. is to say yes yeah. you know and not because you're not supportive but it's you know if you say yes then you have to answer a lot of questions if you say no then you know, usually it stops. Mm. You know, and, and with me, unfortunately, when you say no to me, it, <laughs> it just, doesn't you know, stop. It doesn't stop. <laughs> yeah. You know, and there's a and at the time in the early stages, you know, we because I had the Roschenberg, you know, which is not a huge amount of money, honestly, but it was a lot of for me, the, the value of that Roschenberg was not the dollars, it was the name. Mm. And it was how to leverage as an entrepreneur the name of Robert Roschenberg and his life's mission mm. to sort of how do you use that to leverage, you know, the dollars you have and to build partners, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we are doing all sorts of stuff. Like at that time, Cluck was a small farm shop on Broadway that was getting, you know, evicted essentially, you know, and there's a lot of news and press and stuff. So we, you know, put Cluck as a community partner on the mural, you know, oh, and wow. all of my friends are like, do not do that. You're going to get so much negative press around it. And I was like, yeah, but Drake is this awesome small time business owner that's Mm. like trying to tell province that like urban farming is a cool thing. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, this is a mural that talks about, you know, sort of all sorts of random stuff. Like we want to, we can do this. Like, let's just do it, you know? And, but I think it's, you got to have that patience. You got to sort of, you know, be aware that you walk into this thing, you have no idea what all the pieces are. The people you're working with want to support you, you Mm -hmm. know, 99% of the time, everyone we go to, like, we want to support you. This is an awesome project. Our organization, our city, our state needs this, but I have no way to support you. You know, and when you're going to these sort of bigger things, you know, they have, there's policies and law and all this other stuff and, you know, and they want to be able to pull the binder off and look under section 69, whatever, And say here's an ordinance that i can now support you and dedicate dollars to or align insurance to or whatever you know and and at the time none of that existed Mm -hmm. so you know i had at the time i was writing a lot of that policy for the city and state based on sort of their interests you know and it wasn't about conflict of interest or pushing and pulling because a lot of people had done this before me you know bob rizzo did convergence in the early, early to late nineties. And he put a hundred sculptures in downtown province every year and mm. across the state, you know, Momenta was in Newport and they put sculptures that are now, you know, artists you would never be able to touch with a 10 yard stick. You know, they brought them to Newport and, you know, put them all over the state. You know, there's a lot of people that have been doing this before me, mm. you know, but I think what's different is, you know, we're trying to do it for not just one installation. We're trying to do it for multiples and we want to, go down the hard road. We don't want to go take a lot of quick steps. You know, we can do it through a pop-up or or sort of a a community demonstration. But once we do something, we want to be, we know we're going to come back in six months, a year, five years, whatever. And we want to start where we finished. We don't want to rewrite the policy again. Mm. Mm. And I think, you know, right now, you know, we now have a signed MOU with the city of province. We have actual easements with, you know, city council and all these people and, you know, They've been incredibly supportive the entire time throughout this process. They didn't have a way to support us because it didn't exist. Mm. But now, you know, the city has its own public art program. It's starting to think about, you know, how to sort of fund projects like this. And, and I can't take the credit for any of that stuff. I mean, I think the public can sort of come up with their own conclusions, but, you know, I think it's really fascinating time. And I'm, you know, there's a lot of unknowns that are still out there, and I'm just, you know, excited to be a part of it.
0: Yeah. The, um. I don't know when the phrase or the moniker was coined the creative capital for Providence. Do you know how long ago that was?
2: I wanna say it was like 93, 95. Yeah. So it's
0: been around for a while. And I always felt like, so before I knew I became aware of Avenue concept when, um, we did a, the, the who to watch and oh. we had you guys on the who to watch. And this was like, Becoming part of this company is like where like my rhode island knowledge mm. comes from. You know, everybody that grows up here thinks that like, oh, I know everything about the state. And then you actually get involved in something like this and you're like, oh, no, I don't. <laughs> um, but uh I, before I knew anything about uh you folks, the murals to me, I was always surprised that they went up. And how like not even just that they went up, but how big there were, how many there were, how diverse in like content they were. Um and in my head it always felt like putting, you know, they, them putting their money where their mouth was, saying like they like to use the phrase creative capital and it looks good for for uh advertising and for drawing people in, uh, but actually having like the visual representation of it, because you can go to like Boston and there is some graffiti and there's some murals and stuff, but nothing like what we have here. Definitely. Uh and it feels like the city putting its money where its mouth is for a better for a lack of a better phrase um and being able to come into the capital city and on the highway you can see a bunch of them you know so it was always very impressive to me that it got done and i think they were incredible so yeah
2: thank you i mean i think the for me the murals were a big gamble at the time i mean i think we started with the idea that sculptures would sort of be the way to to do it and Mm -hmm. you know even with plantings and things like that and we had the you know we got involved with the construction of kenny plaza and the circular projects and that kind of things and really helped Solve a planning challenge, but yep. we also knew from other cities and other researchers that a lot of other places start with murals because it's in many ways more ephemeral. You're sort of dealing with a you know a wall that you can paint and that can come down or not, but it's you're not like casting bronze or mm. doing footings mm. and stuff like that. So, but it's a huge gamble. You know, I think this you know there was a unique time in 2014. You know, I think even back to 2013 when. There's the first works festival, you know, that was sort of a continuation of Sound Session and other things. There the the mayor, you know, was just being elected at the time and his campaign was really about, you know, a South by Southwest type, you know, festival in Providence, which I think was was a good idea. Mm. Um and, you know, they wanted to figure out how to do that. You know, and there was a gap year where First Works Festival didn't actually happen. They didn't, for whatever reason, funding or other things. So I sort of said, well, you're going to do all this stuff as a gap year. I was on the committee, um, sort of thinking about this stuff. I had just started the Avenue. I've been running a skate park in downtown Providence called the Avenue Sandwich, where we sort of activated the rink as a way to bring creative energy downtown. And we had a thousand you know, kids of all ages, skateboarding and b-boys and graffiti and uh, all sorts of fun stuff. And we wanted to scale it up. But at the, at the same time, the Avenue was really focused inside. We had a lot of, um, gallery shows and sort of youth workshops and stuff. And then I was able to connect with, um, and find some core seed funders uh, outside of the Rauschenberg. And that gave us a lot more flexibility. Um, someone, you know, some core people, that sort of gave us unrestricted dollars in many ways. So we knew that the city wanted to do this big art festival. We knew that there was gonna be some sort of, a little bit unknowns, but we had all this research and we wanted to sort of go for it. and. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, I got a phone call from a person, Nick Platzer from Vienna. Actually, one day, and randomly called my office. I randomly picked up, and he said, "I, you know, grew up in Providence. I went to classical high school. I now run this gallery, Vienna, um, and I want to bring some of the artists that I work with in in Boston in uh, Europe. I want to bring them back to Providence. You know, can you help me sort of do some walls?" And I said yes, we would love to do that. Um, no idea how to do that. <laughs> um, you know, and we started small and the first artist he brought, you know, helped us connect with was Ivaka one. And we did the front of our building cause it was a place we had the most control. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even at that time it was very, um, we had no idea how the public is going to respond. You know, n- no local media wanted to cover it or support it. You know, it was a sort of underground thing. And, you know, that artist and Nick, um, uh, we were able to bring him here because he was on his way to Art Basel um, in Wynwood, where he did a huge installation. And then the following month, he went down to the Dominican Republic, and they started a huge art festival where they went to a fishing village, brought all of these uh, sort of artists together to paint murals on uh, families' houses and stuff in the DR to tell their personal stories. Um, and it was this amazing cycle or sort of. I was able to connect with Nick, this artist, do this amazing mural on our, our building, which is only 14 feet by you know, 20 feet, but still good scale and size. Um, and then literally go to Winwood, which everyone uses as a proof of a model for like success. And then for him to go straight to the DR and do like this unbelievable project, um, was is awesome. So that we went the next year and said, you're going to do this art festival and stuff. Great. So let's you know, let's turn the dials up. And, you know, the Avenue at that point stopped in 2014 doing inside work. And I really wanted to go outside. I really mm-hmm. felt that, you know, with the the donors that we had at the time, and I uh, felt that the time was, was ripe for picking. And instead of trying to compete with all the other galleries and youth programs and everything else, we needed to, to we had an opportunity and a responsibility to go big, and do something that's going to inspire not just ourselves, but the entire population as a whole. And we needed to figure out how to work outside mm-hmm. um, and work on other people's property in other spaces. And we need to build these environments that, you know, have the ability to scale. Um, and we we went for it. And I think we we did a really good job at the time. It was very Wild West. Um, <laughs> you know, I think we were aligned with an art festival, the International Arts Fair, Art international uh, arts festival. We ended up not, but we were, you know, but it was, you know, it was amazing to have these artists literally show up, you know, off a plane, you know, suitcases, they had their own printers and their own stuff, you mm-hmm. know, cause everywhere they're literally every weekend they're in a different city doing a different project mm-hmm. and wow. to watch these walls come alive in literally 10 days, mm-hmm. you know, it was just amazing. Yeah. Um, and right then and there, you just, you know, we have to figure out how to do this, mm. um, and, and do it in a way that's responsible. You know, and I think that, you know, the art itself is, is just awe inspiring. And for many years, I mean, we thought those pieces were going to, the intention was that it would only be up for a year or two because they're a proof of concept and mm. we want to be able to come back and sort of take on the bigger thing. And And ultimately, you know,
1: it just scaled. And now people look at some of those art pieces, I feel like like that original Onlyville, like B-Boy, like don't touch that. Like if anything were to happen to any of those bigger pieces from that time period, I feel like everyone would be. I mean, I even remember this is like not even I don't know how long it was there. I don't I'm not super familiar with the logistics of it, but even the the beautiful like Sparrow painting on Tiny Bar. Mm. that, I mean, tiny bar was open for like a year. So that wasn't even around that long. And you ended up the Avenue concept, put a new piece, which is absolutely gorgeous. But before they knew a new piece was going up, everyone was like, no, don't touch the art. Like, <laughs> no, we love that. So like, I mean, I'm going to do like a full circle sort of thing. <clears throat> Cause we love to do that here. Um, starting with like the Rochambeau, I, I'm saying that Rochenberg, sorry.
0: <laughs> Rochambeau.
1: I'm thinking That's a of Hope Street. I know. Um, but starting with that, like, It feels like you kind of said like, oh, I got this grant and I didn't really have have like a idea what to do with it. But it feels like they believed in not necessarily like your concept, but in like you as a person and as a creative and a problem solver. And it feels like from what we've learned so far about you and your history and your journey, like that is what. You as a person, like you are a problem solver. You might not label yourself as an artist or as a sculptor or as a mechanic. You're a problem solver. You can go into any of these fields and figure out a way to make these things successful or work or figure out the kinks. And it feels like with this grant, even though you, weren't, you didn't give them a business plan, like this is what I'm going to do. They clearly saw within the projects that you have done, this guy knows what to do. You just give him something, he's going to figure it out, and something cool is going to come out of it. And clearly you proved them right because look at what you're doing now. Um, so that's my first takeaway <laughs> from all this. <laughs> and then my, the other thing, that, and it actually gave me chills when you were telling the story about the first Onlyville mural and about how when you started to restore the mural and people didn't know that's what you were doing and they felt so protective over it, like right there in that moment, that's your proof of concept. Like this community who may not know who the artists were or exactly the time frame or whatever, they had a connection to it. They felt some sort of ownership of it. They felt proud of it. And even obviously you turned it in, you, you weren't doing anything to um, devalue it. You were doing things to make it even better and, and reunite the artists and the B-boys and the B-girls. And we needed to make a documentary of this. This is really like, what <laughs> the heck? Um, but the fact that you were in a community who maybe, I mean, Onlyville has art and is this really cool hip scene. Maybe at that time, it wasn't known for that. But there's your proof of concept. Like you, you, even just trying to make this, restore this mural, people were like, don't touch that. Like, that's our thing. Like, there's your proof of concept. People connect to art. People feel community from art. And I don't know, it's just like all full circle. Like they believed in you. You believed in community. You believed in community art. And you, from your first shot of doing it, you had your proof of concept. Like this is yeah. what, this is what we're doing it for.
2: I mean, it's- for me, that's why I chose the name, the Avenue concept and not a public art program. Mm. You know, a lot of my donors and supporters and advisors early on said, this has to be public art. It has to be literal. Mm. And for me, it was never about like one thing. It was about, you know, to go into the successful idea, you know, I want to identify at least a hundred points of or layers or Things that might have no value or no understanding, but I think they're all there. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, you paint something, you put a a green dot on the square on the ground, and you walk away. You know, and is that going to change the world? Probably not. But if two people say, "What's that circle?" and goes tells someone about it, like for me, that's a start of a conversation and that's success. Totally. You know, and maybe that circle then has a drop shadow or. You add something else to it or, you know, all these other parts and pieces, but you're starting that dialogue. You're Mm. getting people off of their phones. You're slowing people down. You're getting them to acknowledge where they are and to appreciate the environment that they're in. Mm. And I think in the world that is constantly pushing and moving and all these other parts and pieces, I think ultimately we're trying to slow people down and we're trying to bring awareness back to, you know, not just the art, but to the surroundings and all the parts and pieces that come with it. And it's not all super happy, cheery all the time. You know, like in 2012, when we did some early research and stuff, people were like, I love it or I hate it. And it's mm. like, well, why do you love it? And why do you hate it? I don't know. I just don't like it. All <laughs> right. Because they
1: weren't used to it. They yeah. didn't know the impact at the time. Now, like you said, now people are probably knocking at your door. Like, let me get art on my, let me get photography. Let me get all the, yeah. you know, you do so many different lanes of, of art, but, it's just so funny how the times. So, like,
2: we wanted to double down on storytelling. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, that's a whole other facet we could, another show. Um,
0: <laughs> we'll have you back.
2: We're going to have just a series. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's like, you know, and no, no, nothing against the city or anything, but, like, we live in the creative capital, but our main paper, the ProJo, doesn't have a creative column.
3: Mm. Yep.
2: So... You know, when Trini Rep does an amazing Broadway show, they have to fly in a reporter from New York City to do a review that actually validates the dollars they raise and the show that and the programming they're trying to run.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, our city is very analog. You know, mm-hmm. it's a long history. You go back to Fort Thunder and, you know, all the early days. And even today, there's a lot of there's a long history of poster making and, you know, print and, you know, textiles and all this stuff like a lot of people are very hands-on. That Mm. doesn't transfer very well into a smartphone or into other things. There's so many writers that live and work in our community. You know, even when I went to RISD, you know, all of the English, there's an English department at RISD, like no one would think that exists. And if you talk to all of those English teachers, they all love to write because they love language. Mm. But RISD didn't have a journal or a paper that all of those English teachers would love to talk about the exhibits in the museum or this, you know, their students that are coming from all the different departments are coming into the English department, which is the only solo. And they're just all these amazing stories to be told. So like, how do you sort of tell that story? You know, Mm. like there are all of these things that we're just starting to touch on the basis of. And I think we're, you know, we've opened Pandora's box in many (laughs) ways and people are talking and you've invited me onto this podcast, which is amazing. And Mm. we're, going back into history and stuff, which is so fun, but it's like at some point we got to, the hard part is filtering that, mm. you know, yeah. and, and we have to, we can't say yes to everything as much mm. as I want to say yes to everything as a founder and ED, the organization is not me anymore. Mm. We have a board, we have staff, we have a lot of obligations for salaries and healthcare and all the parts and pieces that go into it. And, you know, we can't do everything, but unless there's a huge amount of money, but even with a lot of money, it just makes more challenges. Mm. So you know, having that sort of parts and pieces that, you know, it's yeah. awesome. I mean, it's in, you know, I'm struggling with it from, you know, a, a cultural and an organizational side, but also just the things that I'm personally interested in. Mm. And like, you know, what do I want to do now? I have a wife and a daughter and,
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know, all those other parts and pieces and sort of what are those pieces and how do I sort of make those things work? And, and it's tough, but mm. it's it's fascinating.
0: Yeah. Well, like you had said uh, before that, you know, there's no, uh, like you have to kind of filter things you can't get through. And that's the same thing with like, um, so like we have uh, a magazine in Providence, so we have Providence Monthly uh, and we do have an arts and culture, culture section, but it only comes out once a month and it can only be so long Mm. and we can only cover so many things by the same people so many times without covering other people. And it's like, you run into that same kind of issue. Like if we cover uh like let's say uh ppac this month um we don't want to then cover them again next month because it means we can't cover somebody else Mm. and we can't have we can only have so many articles and it's like you run into that kind of logistical there's only so many things you can do as an organization at any one given time uh and we try to lean into our art stuff a pretty decent amount uh with uh, especially with providence monthly because it's the creative capital and um it's hard uh, yeah. There's nothing easy about it. Um, especially in that I love, uh, anything creative and art and music and anything I can listen to and go, go see. And, um, you, the same kind of thing happens with us. Like, I'd love to say yes to everything. Yeah, Like <laughs> if I could, <laughs> I definitely would. My magazine would be 300 pages long <laughs> every month, but yeah, you're, you're kind of, you're restricted by, uh, the bounds of being a business and having employees and having to pay bills and do all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's, it's also like, what is creative?
2: You know, I mean, people think of it as like, maybe what we're doing now is public art and the things we're doing, but there's also the culinary arts, there's the theater arts, there's the dancing arts. There's also the unions and the the tradesmen and women Mm -hmm. that are doing Mm -hmm. stuff. I mean, the things that are coming out of East Bay from, you know, the shift of, America's Cup yacht design and fabrication and painting is now turning into contemporary sculptures and, you know, composite bridges and sort of looking at all of these parts and pieces that are, you know, billionaires from all over the world are still coming to Rhode Island to solve problems, Mm -hmm. you know, and they're coming back to these people that maybe built a ship or, or did woodworking or did foundry work or other things. And they're all sort of adapting into these other fields. And They're coming up with creative solutions. They're coming up with all these facets that I think are really fascinating. And Mm -hmm. for me, the avenue and what we're trying to do is not just a sculpture or a piece of art. It's like, you know, for a long time, you know, there was a whole, you know, collection of Roy Lichtenstein sculptures that were literally made on the East Bay, Mm -hmm. sat in a bonded warehouse for a number of years. You know, all of those should be sitting you know in a public park that mm. someone could see yeah. and not just because it's an amazing piece of art but it's also a story that could be told that you know the reason this is here is because a painter and a person that learned how to paint aluminum racing boats you know designed a paint system and a process of fabrication that you could survive in the ocean and this artist before he passed came to Rhode Island to take something in his brain and put it into a piece of art and mm. And this is now here and it's literally connecting East Bay, West Bay, South Bay, all of these sort of facets. And, you know, that's just one swath of like sort of all these parts and pieces. And like, how do you put all those together? Like, what are those stories? Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, and how do you even find them? Cause they're like fascinating.
1: Like mm-hmm. you said, it's like opening, like you find something and it's a beautiful discovery and it's awesome. But like you said, you're opening Pandora's box because it's just like it's deeper and deeper and more in depth and more people and more things to figure out. And, it feels like you're the guy to do it, though. If I had to say anyone could do it, it feels like you have mastered. Um, I know Nick says it, what, master, master of none, something of everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. But you are the master of problem solving, my friend, which is pretty cool. That's like a pretty cool, I'm giving you that title okay. right here on the Roadie on the podcast.
0: And your idea of, uh, that everybody fought you on of it being Avenue Concept and not public art, something or other really does it was it, it's smart in the fact that it leaves you open to do other things mm. and doesn't shoehorn you into one thing Correct. Mm. especially once you become a non and then people give you uh you know their donations and say yeah. you were just called public art and then you start wanting to uh back an artist who's doing innovative things in whole design or something okay. you know and then they somebody will get upset like well that's not where my money was put, and you can say with avenue concept the idea is that it's open and it supports creativity across the spectrum Mm. which was a fantastic way to go about it
2: thank you i mean i think it's it's just trying to come up with a different approach and i think it's you know those are some of the challenges that are i'm trying to like sort of battle with and you were talking on something though, and i I, problem solver Mm. so i think one one thing that I'm not a master of, or I'm (laughs) learning how to be a master of, and maybe with your followers can help me with this, but you know, the organization now is, you know, as a, to be a legal nonprofit, you have to be supported by the public, Mm. you know, and you can put an amazing piece of art or you can do something that starts a conversation, but you need to show, you know, that you can, that the community at large is supporting you, you know, through all sorts of parts and pieces, but also making, you know, donations, Mm. you know, and, we don't need huge amounts of money, but we do need we are still a small nonprofit. Yeah. Know, we are not twenty or thirty years old with an institution or a big endowment or you know, government contracts or mm-hmm. anything else. We're still, you know, beating the bushes and you know, starting, you know, having those small conversations with people and you know, you know, help us sur- help us survive as an organization. You know, what paying-
1: is the best way for someone to donate? Is, it, is there a place online? Is it, what is the best way?
2: Yeah. Our best place is to go to our website and sign up for the newsletter. Mm. Um, you know, it's a great way to just learn about what's going on with the Avenue concept. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a way, you know, with some writing, some pictures, we have a donate page. We have a, a pretty active membership uh, platform uh, that people can make any number of donations. Um, but I'm also really interested in hearing from people, you mm. know, if you have an idea or you know, there's a, a place or, you know, something around your community that you think would make a big impact. Like, you know, reach out and tell me about it, mm. you know, and, and let's have that conversation. I had an amazing conversation this morning with someone that said, you know, I want to find a way to inspire my community or my neighborhood to think outside the box. Mm. You know, how do we do that? You know, and I don't know, but I (laughs) but we're gonna try to solve the problem. Yeah. Yeah. I wanna I wanna start that conversation. Mm. But you know, it it has to come back to budget. It has to come back to managing expectations. It's not just me anymore running around doing, you know, what I think is gonna work and sort of trying to figure those pieces out. You know, Mm. there's a lot more at stake right now. And that's a lot of responsibility. That's you know, sort of understanding how to manage that is, is really complicated.
0: Mm. Yeah. And I like, uh, the, what they say, end on a call to action, right? Mm. So <laughs> uh, I like the idea of, uh, ending on that, the, um, kind of call to action that you are a nonprofit, uh, and that you are supported by the general public. Uh, best place to do that is through your website. So that's the Avenue Correct. Uh, i assume you are all on, uh, uh social media as well as it the Avenue concept on everything.
2: Uh, Facebook is the Avenue Concept and Instagram and Twitter is AvenuePVD. Avenue
0: PVD. Avenue PVD.
1: And your social accounts are anyone who doesn't already follow them, they are the most inspiring. I feel like anytime you have a question about any of the pieces, you, whoever runs your social media is always very knowledgeable, gets back to you really quickly. And if you're someone who's not from Providence, if you live in Narragansett or uh warwick whatever and you're interested in like taking a tour of all the art follow their instagram you can see all the coolest things the colors that pop out at you that you're interested in and you can you know mark the page and it's very um it's super easy to navigate and it makes the experience awesome um
2: we have a new app too now that's free so you can go to your apple store or you know google sites and just the avenue concept walking tour and it's a free tour. Um, You can do it on your desktop. You can open your phone and walk around the streets and we'll guide you around. It will also kind of give you hidden secrets from a video interview or a detail around a mural. Um, We also have some, we're starting to develop like a field guide for teachers and um, really starting to put some questions out there as well. Mm. Sort of like you're standing at this wall, but did you notice, you know, that the building to the right was the first custom house in all of the country or were you realizing that the difference of gradation of brick color from this building to that building you know so there's a lot of other parts and pieces we also i also do private walking tours so we also for families for schools you know um next monday we have 40 students coming to the avenue and i'm doing a graffiti workshop with them and then we're going to do a a 30-minute walking tour of Upper South Providence or sort of wow. looking at urban space and sort of what can art do to inspire the next generation.
0: Mm. And do you have like a, uh, on your website like some kind of calendar of those events and programs? Would that be under your programs tab on your on your website?
2: We don't now because we, we, um, we're still working on the program side. Mm. I think gotcha. that's sort of the bottom line. I, you know, we've, for the last nine years, we've really been working on this proof of concept. We wanted mm. to, to sort of test the water's if we build it, will people come Mm -hmm. now? We're in this, you know, we've transitioned from, you know, not just building it. Now we need to, you know, show that people want to come and we're we're here to listen and to make some decisions. You know, we have another 10 years, to plan, Uh, we need to sort of better understand, you know, what does the public want? What are the interests? You know, I want to go into the neighborhoods and I want to sort of go back into the, you know, the underpasses and stuff and go deep into the community. But we also, don't want to assume anything. Yeah. Sort of like, what are the communities at large? What are they interested in? What are the stories that we're not hearing? And you know, how do we make those connections? Yeah, and um, I'm
0: assuming you do at right now when you're going to be doing those things, um, like things with students or or walking tours. Those get posted on your social media. Yes. So people, that's a good way to find out. It's kind of just to follow you on Instagram or Facebook and yep. kind of just keep up and, and uh, follow you there.
2: Yeah. If anyone's interested in a walking tour, or if they're a teacher or a person, uh, just reach out to us, hello mm-hmm. at org or myself, yara at org, And I'd be happy to, you know, figure that out.
0: Awesome.
1: Well, where I have to say that this was such a wonderful experience for me being someone who loves the art around the city and who has known about the Avenue concept for a while, but not really, I, I never really obviously knew about you, right? Because we said like, you can't learn about someone and about their heart and their mind and their story through, you know, an article. So I'm so thankful that you came and you gave us your time. And I can't wait for the next episode where we can talk even more about it. Yeah, I was going to say, and I,
0: I, I, don't want it to feel like i'm cutting this off but i could continue to talk about this kind of stuff for like six hours forever <laughs> uh, so we're just gonna have to whether you want to or not we're gonna drag you back on you're here coming at some back point and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and we'll keep doing this
2: yeah talk about sailing and boats and yeah
1: we didn't even, get to, didn't even get to touch oh on that oh my god
0: yet. yeah absolutely so we'll have you back on thank you for coming on thank you this was wonderful
1: thanks bye guys awesome
0: thanks everybody <laughs>